Gresham College presents Are Happy Endings Real? by the Right Reverend Lord Harrys, Gresham Professor of Divinity. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I don't know whether you like uh, novels with happy endings uh, or novels with uh, sad endings. Perhaps that's uh, rather a silly question to ask, but it is a question that a lot of people are prepared to answer. A quest, uh, uh, answer. Uh, to celebrate Book Day on the 2nd of March 2006, a poll was commissioned amongst readers of various kinds about the kind of ending they preferred. 41% said they wanted one with a happy ending. Only 2.2% chose a sad one. And the author, Adele Parks, made her own position very clear. She said, I think my readers deserve happy endings. There's enough grimness to deal with without, without adding to it. Uh, any takers for that view here? William Boyd, on the other hand, a very distinguished author, took a totally contraboard view. He said that serious literature must reflect the grimness of life. And he said that happy endings lead us into the realm of fantasy, romance, and fairy tale, which he intensely disliked. Uh, well, I wonder whether you agreed with William Boyd or Adele Parks. Now, one of the very interesting questions to me is whether Christian faith offers a happy ending or not. Uh, clearly, many people think it does offer, offer a happy ending, uh, and that's one of the reasons why they, in fact, uh, dismiss it as so much fantasy, romance, and fairy tale, to use the words which William uh, Boyd uses. Now, whether it does or does not offer a happy ending is uh, one of the questions, uh, the underlying questions of this lecture to which I'm going to uh, return. But obviously closely related to this is whether it is possible to have happy endings in novels or in a religious uh, narrative uh, which have real integrity. That is, endings that take the tragic dimension of life with all seriousness, that don't pretend that suffering is other than what it is, uh, and which offer a conclusion which is as real as the tragedy that has gone before and has the same kind of integrity in its telling. And I'm very interested in this question, both from the standpoint of, of novels uh, and also from the standpoint of the uh, Christian uh, nar narrative. Now, you could take and contrast a happy novel or a tragic novel. Uh, recently, I've been reading Jane Austen's Persuasion, uh, a novel where virtue is most wonderfully rewarded at the end in a very happy ending. I've also been reading uh, Philip Roth's uh, The Human Stain, which is a very tragic uh, story. And I'm not going to refer to those in detail because you could, only, you could pick your own happy ending or sad ending of the novels you've uh, read. But um, I have referred uh, to the more details of those two novels uh, in, the, in the transcript. And once or twice... In this lecture, I'll be referring to things, so I won't be going into detail now, but if you want to follow them up, they're there. Now, there are a number of reasons why we're deeply suspicious of happy endings, much though we may enjoy them on occasions. First, life, at least for a great many people, is indeed grim. And this sense of the grimness, the tragedy of life, of course, was very, very acute in the 20th century with two world wars, uh, the Holocaust, 
uh, Pol Pot regime, the purges in Stalinist uh, Russia, uh, and, uh, and so on. Um, and this uh, fundamental shift to a, a tragic dimension of life, which I think people are so conscious of now, uh, is very much uh, reflected in the reception history of uh, Grunewald's uh, great painting of Christ crucified, uh, which is on the Eisenheim altar in, in Germany. In the 18th and 19th century, that painting was relatively unknown. But in uh, 18, uh, 1918, just after the First World War, it was taken out and shown in public. And somehow it caught the imagination of the German people because it seemed to express their self-image uh, as a suffering, martyred, angst-ridden people. And since then, that uh, image of Christ crucified on the Eisenheim altar, more than perhaps any other painting, uh, at least from within a religious tradition, has somehow uh, expressed what people feel uh, about life. Now, in addition to this tragic sense of life that I think people are so conscious of these days, uh, Freud was imbuing Western culture with the notion of wishful thinking, uh, brilliantly summed up in the lapidary phrase of the novelist Iris Mur Murdoch, all that consoles is fake, she said. Well, one could question that. I haven't got time to do that, and I could. But it's not, therefore, surprising with our sense of the tragic and our deep suspicion uh, that anything that offers a happy ending may just be wishful thinking. Uh, it's, it, 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 Christ crucified uh, is a dominant theme, both in painting and, as we'll come to see, in novels. Uh, and any attempt to depict the resurrection of Christ or redemption is, are, are there very few. As W.H. Auden, the poet, said, Today we find Good Friday easy to accept. What scandalizes us is Easter. Modern man finds a happy ending, a final victory of love over the prince of this world, very hard to uh, swallow. Now, um, last week I mentioned... Um, Nicholas Boyle's uh, understanding of, of literature, uh, that literature, uh, if it represents something, and what it represents is appreciated by the reader or, or the audience, in itself witnesses to the fundamental goodness of creation. I find that a very, very interesting thesis. He's suggesting that a novel doesn't have to prove anything, particularly go anywhere, but by the very fact of representation and the fact that there are readers who appreciate what is representative, there is a kind of witness to the ultimate goodness of uh, creation. I wonder whether that's true. I tried to test that out in terms of my own experience. I can think of at least one novel I've read which contradicts that point of view. It's a novel by very well thought of writer, uh, the South African writer uh, J.M. Uh, Coetzee, however it's pronounced, called Disgrace, uh, which was a prize-winning novel, uh, but the view of human beings that came across to me in it is that we human beings are really uh, no better and no worse than the carcasses of dead dogs. And I couldn't, for the life of me, uh, see what there was in that that somehow aff affirmed 
the, the goodness of creation. I wonder, when we come to the discussion, whether there are certain novels you have read which would also contradict uh, the thesis of, of, of Nicholas Boyle. Another novel by Philip Roth, A Dying Animal, which similarly makes no bones about the fact that we're animals and we're dying animals. It's actually a quotation from the poet W.B. Yeats. Nevertheless, towards the end, suggests that actually, even as dying animals, we develop attachments. And those attachments are absolutely fundamental to us. So I did find that novel witness to something fundamentally worthwhile uh, about what it is to be a, a human being. And to take a, one more novel, which I think does so in an even more uh, powerful way, William uh, Trevor. I don't know whether anybody here has read the short stories or novels of William Trevor. He's an Irishman. Uh, he's generally counted the best short story writer of, of our time. But all his stories are so sad. Uh, they're so bleak. They're unbelievably uh, bleak. Um, and particularly the story of Lucy Galt. Well, again, I'm not going to go into the uh, narrative of, of that because you can get bogged down by hearing about too many narratives of novels, but it's actually going to be in the transcript. But just take it from me, the story of Lucy Galt uh, couldn't be bleaker uh, it couldn't be uh, sadder, but it ends by this old lady who's had the most terrible, tragic life with absolutely no consolation in her life at all, no consolation, but she reflects towards the end. She should have died as a child. She knows that, but she's never said it to the nuns, has never included in the story of herself the days that felt like years when she lay fallen among the stones. It would have lowered their spirits, although it lifts her own, because instead of nothing, there is what there is. Now that was a novel which couldn't have been bleaker, sadder, with less consolation, and yet somehow it did affirm the value of life simply as life, particularly in that wonderful last statement where she says, looking back on her, on her life, uh, because instead of nothing, there is what there is. And I think that does triumphantly vindicate uh, Nicholas uh, Boyle's uh, view uh, that representation affirms what is represented, that creation, despite everything, is good. Uh, in W.H. Auden's wonderful words, we can, we must, Bless what there is for uh, being. Now, there are some people uh, who look at the story of, of Jesus and although they cannot believe uh, in the resurrection or in eternal life, uh, they do see uh, in it something uh, triumphant, something uh, which does, in a marvellous way, help them to affirm uh, life. Uh, it's possible to see the story of Jesus as uh, tragic, but nevertheless one which does reveal and affirm certain fundamental values. And there's a character in one of Iris Murdoch's novels who seems to take this view, because he's asked 
what is his opinion of Christ? And he replies, I have to think of him uh, in a certain way, not resurrected, as it were, mistaken, disappointing, disappointed. Well, who knows what he thought. He has to mean pure affliction, pointless suffering, the deep and awful and irremediable things that happen uh, to, uh, to people. Um, and some people, uh, building on that, um, have nevertheless seen uh, in Jesus something which is finally triumphant. You may possibly remember if you were here last week, I talked a little bit about the nature of the tragic, uh, how you can see something on the stage or read something in a novel uh, which is utterly tragic, but the very uh, tragedy seems to reveal and affirm some fundamental values which are uh, implicit in the person or in the, in the script. And you could look at the story of the life of Jesus and the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus in that kind of way. This is a, a tragedy, uh, but it does reveal something which is absolutely fundamental uh, to life and its worthwhileness and its value despite everything. Uh, and therefore, in that sense, uh, it's a, a, a triumph. Uh, and that's why uh, there have been certain Christian theologians in uh, recent years who've not believed in the resurrection in any traditional sense, uh, but they believe that the life of Jesus has, as it were, brought about a shift in their consciousness. And that shift in their consciousness, uh, first of all on behalf of the first followers of Jesus, and then by Christians in subsequent ages, uh, has been enough for them to believe in the resurrection and inverted uh, commas. Now, I can understand the appeal of that, but what I really want to pose is the question as to whether one can go beyond that and see anything uh, in literature uh, which corresponds a little bit more uh, to a more traditional Christian understanding of redemption and uh, resurrection. Let me take uh, the novelist uh, Shusuko Endo, who's been called uh, the Japanese Graham Greene. He is best known for two novels about Christians in Japan in the 16th and 17th century. Christianity was brought to Japan in the middle of the 16th century, and by 1614 uh, there were 300,000 Christians in a population of 20 million. But the rulers turned against them, and thousands were tortured and crucified to force them to renounce their faith. And Silence, the title of Endo's novel, which referred to the, refers to the apparent silence of God at this terrible time, uh, deals uh, with, as the title suggests, the apparent silence of God during this awful period of persecution. And then Samurai, his other great novel, set in the early 17th century, when things were just beginning to look ominous. And it follows the fortunes of four samurai or minor gentry who are on a diplomatic mission to Mexico and Europe to explore the possibilities of trade. And traveling with them as an interpreter is a Jesuit priest. And as the politics change, the samurai first embrace the Christian faith and then abandon it. Because they had embraced it, they went back to Japan knowing that torture and death awaited them. And the novel brings out powerfully not only the universal self-seeking and misery of humanity, but the difficulty that Japanese culture finds in seeing anything 
admirable in Christianity, especially the figure of Christ crucified. Now, in Mexico, the, Mexi the mission comes across a strange man, a Japanese living with the Indians. And it turned out that he'd been brought up in Japan by a Christian priest and had, had become a believer, indeed a monk. But he'd become disillusioned with the institutional church, both in Japan and Mexico, and now lived with the Indians trying to help them. And as he says, wherever the Indians go, I shall go. Where they stay, I shall stay. They need someone like me to wipe off their sweat when they're ill, to hold their hands at the moment of death. The Indians and I, we are both without a home. And when the samurai go home, one of them pulls out a piece of paper given him by that strange Japanese Christian they'd found amongst the Indians, and written on it were the words, He is always beside us. He listens to our agony and grief. He weeps with us and says to us, Blessed are they who weep in this life, for in the kingdom of heaven they shall smile. And then the Japanese, after reading that piece of paper, reflects, He was that man with the drooping head, the man as scrawny as a pin, that man whose arms stretched lifelessly out, nailed to a cross. For some reason, he didn't feel the same contempt for him he'd felt before. In fact, it seemed as though that wretched man was much like himself as he sat abstractly by the hearth. And later, the Japanese samurai speaks to his servant, Yoso, who's a Christian who'd followed his master through thick and thin. And he says... I suppose that somewhere in the hearts of men there is a yearning for someone who will be with you throughout your life. Someone who will never betray you, never leave you, even if that someone is just a sick, mangy dog. That man became just such a miserable dog for the sake of mankind. And then the samurai leaves his home for virtually certain death. The swirling flakes seem like the white swans of the marshlands, Birds of passage which came to the marshland from a different country and then departed for a distant country. Birds which had seen many countries, many cities. They were himself, and now he was setting off for another unknown land. From now on, he will be beside you. Suddenly he heard Yoso's strained voice behind him. From now on, he will attend you. Now, as you uh, can see from that, this is... Uh, powerfully that reinforces the point I made earlier, uh, that it is Christ crucified to whom we uh, respond. And in Japan, of course, uh, in addition to the catalogue of horrors that I mentioned earlier, there was the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the traditional centres of Christianity in Japan. But the novel is not just about universal suffering and failure of every human endeavour. In all this, from now on, he will be beside you. From now on, he will attend you. That, I suppose, if you wanted to put in very traditional terms, is about the uh, universal contemporaneity of the risen presence of, uh, of Christ. Uh, but can you go beyond even that to depict something of the process of, of, of redemption in historical terms? I think two novels that I have read uh, in recent decades, do at least attempt this in a way which has real integrity. One is Patrick White, the Australian novelist's 
novel, Riders in the Chariot, and the other is William Golding's Darkness Visible. Now, I'm not going to burden you with a, a great script or narrative from those two, uh, but it would be very interesting to discover in the conversation whether you feel uh, there are uh, any novels which you have read uh, that uh, do indicate in a real way which has real integrity uh, something redemptive about human life. Now in 2006 I delivered the President's Lecture at the Hay Literary Festival much along the lines of this present talk to you this afternoon and at the end there was a space for questions. Bishop, why are all the novelists you've chosen male? Uh, and I felt absolutely awful. It was the first question, followed by a terrible blankness from me, as I suddenly realised they had all been male. And it sometimes happens at question time. My mind went a total blank. I couldn't think of all those women novelists that I'd read, which might have illustrated the theme. But one I certainly ought to have mentioned, and I want to mention now in a little bit more detail, was Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor was born in 1925 and died at the age of 39 after years of painful, incapacitating illness. And two facts are fundamental to her writing. She was a practicing Catholic and she lived in and wrote about the American Protestant Bible Belt that she knew well, usually poor whites, uneducated, bizarre, and caught up in a fundamentalist religion. And Flannery O'Connor has written very def uh, definite things about the challenges of a believing Christian novelist in a largely secular Western world. She says, for example, that one of the reasons she writes about unfashionable people is because their faith and passion reveal truths that are hidden from politer society. And more deeply, in a time when Christian truth is ignored or rejected, to believe in the incarnation of redemption makes a total difference to the way one sees things. As she put it, the Christian novelist will have in these times the sharpest eyes for the grotesque, for the perverse, and for the unacceptable. And she thought the Christian novelist is distinguished from his or her pagan colleagues by recognizing sin as sin. And according to this heritage, uh, the novelist sees it not as a sickness or an accident of the environment, but as a responsible choice of offense against God and others, which involves an eternal future. So you can see she takes a pretty old-style orthodox view on this. But she argues either one is serious about salvation or one is not. Uh, and it is as well to realize that the maximum amount of seriousness, you'll be pleased to hear, admits the maximum amount of comedy. Only if we are secure in our beliefs, she writes, can we see the comical side of the universe. And she believed, amazingly enough, to those of us in this country who look at it rather differently, that the deep south of America still reflected this sense that our human condition is a broken one and that sin is a reality. And although the south was not Christ-centered, it was certainly Christ-haunted. And no less important to her is the working of grace in her characters. As she puts it, my subject is in fiction is the action of grace in territory held largely by the devil. So even when the central character of a story is what she terms a freak, that's her term, 
She's trying to show what we have in us to become and what we could become. And there is in her story, she says, an action that is totally unexpected, yet she thinks totally believable. And such an action indicates that grace has been offered. And frequently it is an action in which the devil has been the unwilling instrument of grace. Now Flannery O'Connor has written both novels and short stories. I'm just going to deal with one of her short stories which illustrates her basic philosophy of writing uh, in a very startling way. It's called Parker's Back, and it's only 20 pages, but she worked on it over very, very many years, and she finished it just as she was dying young in hospital. Parker left school early, ran away to join the Navy, but one leave failed to return, so after nine months' punishment was discharged from the Navy. He did odd jobs to earn a living and had married Ruth, whom he thought ugly, but whom he somehow wanted to attract. Parker's obsession in life was tattooing. His whole body, except his back, is covered in tattoos. And one day, after an accident on a tractor, he went to a local town and had his whole back tattooed with a Christ Pantocrator in mosaic design. You know, the rather stern figure, which is usually found... Uh, on the ceiling of the dome in an Orthodox church, uh, which he just happened to see in a book of designs and about which he knew nothing. Parker goes home, and in expectation that his wife, who, was be, will, who is religious, will be pleased, he shows her his back. She doesn't recognize the Christ of the Orthodox tradition, beats him over the back with a broom, and he goes out to the yard to weep. To weep. Now, Parker's obsession with having his body tattooed is of course bizarre uh, but it seems religiously important to him when he was 14 he saw a man tattooed all over in a fairground and the sight of his body in its glorious designs and colors was a moment of revelation to him then although his life seemed all futile drift with nothing achieved he always sensed a kind of destiny behind it and this destiny is at once a reality pursuing him from which he wants to flee and a glory in him which wants to be revealed. And when he first met his wife, he sat on the porch looking across the highway to a vista of hills. And the story describes Parker's state of mind. Long views depressed Parker. You look into space like that and you begin to feel as if someone were after you, the navy or the government or religion. And after he'd had his back tattooed, he drank a bottle of whiskey with friends, then went outside and sat on the ground and examined his soul. He saw it as a spider web of facts and lies that was not at all important to him, but which appeared to be necessary in spite of his opinion. The eyes that were now forever on his back were eyes to be obeyed. He was as certain of it as he'd been of anything. Throughout his life, grumbling and sometimes cursing, often afraid, once in rapture, Parker had obeyed whatever instinct of this kind had come to him. The rapture when his spirit had lifted to the sight of the tattooed man at the fair, afraid when he joined the Navy, grumbling when he'd married Sarah Ruth. And although Parker appears to dislike his wife, he has this strange desire to please her. It was for her sake he had his back tattooed with the religious picture, because she was religious even though he was not. He thinks that showing his back to her will make it all right between them, but she rejects the picture and him. Parker was too stunned to resist. He sat there and let her beat him 
until she'd nearly knocked him senseless and large welts had formed on the face of the tattooed Christ. Then he staggered up and made for the door. His wife looks out and sees him crying like a baby. Suddenly we see the longing and suffering of Parker and the longing and suffering of Christ in him. Poor Parker, an ordinary, uneducated, unattractive, rather useless man with a futile obsession, caught up in an apparently loveless marriage, yet a man who, almost totally uncomprehending, knows that God is ceaselessly searching him out and who senses that the glory of God is in some way to be revealed in him. Now we can see how well this story fits in with Flannery O'Connor's really unique philosophy, I think, of how a Christian writer has to write in a time of indifference and unbelief, with a narrative that is totally surprising and shocking. In terms of the main theme of this lecture, it's hardly a happy ending in any straightforward sense of the term. But of course it all means what you mean by the end, the, te the telos, or the goal of human existence. If it is that the glory of God might be revealed in and through us human beings, if that is what the telos, the end, the goal of human existence is, then this is what we see even in such an unlikely person as Parker. Now, I think it's probably no accident that the novels that I have mentioned over the last five or ten minutes were all, and the short story, were all written some sort of 30 or 40 years ago. And I find it very difficult to think of novels that have been more recently than that, which have any really significant theme of, of, of redemption in them. Am I mistaken? Perhaps you have read some which have been written over the last, say, 20 years, which illustrate the theme, which I think is so powerfully there, as I said, in Patrick White, in William Golding, and Flannery O'Connor. And the reason for this, if it is true, may not be true, but if it is true, came home to me very strongly when I was watching Mike Lee's play on the London stage called 2000 Years. It's a play about a North London Jewish family. Uh, the grandparents in their younger days uh, were ardent, atheistic, socialist Zionists, and this is still their ideal. Their children, however, are totally assimilated, agnostic, non-observant, North London Jews. And then, suddenly, their son, the grandson of the atheistic Zionists, gets religion in a big way. He becomes strictly observant to the shock, horror, and chagrin of both his agnostic parents and his atheistic grandparents. And the first act is a brilliant disclosure of this situation in all its surprisingness and, and humor. But the second final act goes absolutely nowhere. There's no advance in the plot, no deepening of understanding or insight, and it peters out inconclusively. The family simply didn't know what to do about their son who'd got religion. Nor one feels did Mike Lee, nor, I would suggest, does our culture. But what happened in that Jewish family uh, is sometimes now what's happening in Christian families and, and in Muslim families. Uh, uh, and the literary world is shocked by the persistence of religion, particularly in its fundamentalist form, doesn't understand it and finds it distinctly unpleasing. 
and mainstream liberals in the three religions find themselves in an awkward place defending a non-fundamentalist understanding of religion on one hand against fundamentalists and the whole concept of religion as a serious intellectual endeavor against what Schleiermark in the 19th century termed the cultured despisers of religion. And so in this situation, very difficult to get a serious debate going about uh, religion, one that's not marked by mutual ignorance, lack of understanding and, and disparagement. Uh, and in this wider climate of opinion, maybe one of the reasons why it's actually difficult in our time to get uh, the kind of novels which were there 40 years ago with people like William Golding and Patrick White. But I may be wrong. You may think of something. No, so finally, just to conclude, um, I'd like to suggest that novels remain truest to their art form when they avoid what has been termed a premature closure, whether in the course of an optimistic or a pessimistic reading of life whether it's optimistic or pessimistic. And Rowan Williams, in his recent brilliant book on Dostoevsky, uh, in which he acknowledges uh, uh, a great uh, influence of the former provost of Gresham, uh, Lord Sutherland, argues that Dostoevsky is always driving the narrative on, trying to keep the debate uh, open. Now, if it is a fault of much religion in the past that it is given a premature closing to an optimistic reading, is it perhaps a fault of some fiction today that it gives a premature closing to a, an over-pessimistic uh, reading? Graham Greene once said something like, my faith uh, is my faith that my unbelief will be proved wrong. A wonderfully Graham Greenish kind of statement. I'm not sure I've got the exact words, but you can get, I think he said something like that. Um, and I think I just refer to one of his novels, which I think does keep the issue open uh, in, a, in a wonderfully uh, mellow way. Uh, the critics don't regard it as one of their favourite readings. I think it's one of uh, one of his. No I, I, I find it one of his best novels because it's so mellow. It's his novel, uh, Monsieur Quixote, uh, in which the central character is a priest who claims to be descended from the famous fictional character Don Quixote. And this annoys an American professor who says, I haven't much time for fiction, facts are what I like. And this draws a response from a monk. Fact and fiction, they're not always easy to distinguish. And such is the charm and power of the book, you come to share that point of view. Father Quixote is a mixture of innocence, shrewdness and goodwill, traveling with his friend, the communist mayor. He's been forbidden to celebrate the Eucharist by his bishop, uh, but dying and delirious, insists on celebrating mass without any bread or wine, getting his companion, the atheistic mayor, to kneel. And when the priest dies, uh, the atheistic mayor reflects, why is it that the hate of a man, even a man like Franco, dies with his death? And yet love, the love which he'd begun to feel for Father Quixote, seemed now to live and grow in spite of the final separation and the final silence. For how long, he wondered, with a kind of fear, was it possible for that love of his to continue? And to what end? So now was our perhaps most satisfactory when in subtle ways 
they suggest, as that Monsignor Quixote does, that there might be more to life than the bleak or the tragic course of events that they so often realistically and rightly present. When they leave a window open for the possibility of redemption, even eternal life, as in that novel. When, to echo Graham Greene, we, in, we finish with an enhanced sense of hope that our characteristic pessimism about life might perhaps, in the end, be shown to be groundless. So, I hope you'll be able to share with me some things with, which you read that might illustrate uh, the theme of that uh, uh, lecture or ask any questions you like. So, over to us for a gen general discussion. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.